Right, living in exile, that's the theme of our gathering over these two days. It was the theme of our time in the States last week as well. Why this theme? Why are we talking about living in exile? Well, it feels a relevant and a timely theme that the worlds we live in, the Western world, seems to be increasingly hostile to Christian beliefs, Christian values, and there can be an increasing sense that we don't quite fit, don't quite belong in the way that perhaps we did. So it feels like a timely and relevant theme to think of, and out of that we need to see that there are challenges to living in exile, but there are also wonderful gospel opportunities that God gives us. And we need to understand that we really do live in exile, and actually Christians have always been called to live in exile. This isn't strange, isn't just a, a particular moment in history where at this particular cultural moment we are living in exile in a unique way. No, actually followers of Jesus have always been called to be exiles, to be aliens, to be pilgrims following after him. And the framing scripture for this in many ways is the beginning of Peter's letter, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2, where the Apostle Peter writes this, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's uh, regions of what we would now call Turkey. We're going to be praying for Turkey during our time together. Such an important nation. Uh, I just had a message yesterday from a friend in Turkey who passes a church there, a British guy, uh, who was going to come home to the UK. And as he got to the border, he was told that he'd been flagged as a security threat and that if he left Turkey, he wouldn't be allowed to come back in. Over the last year or so, about 40 people that we know... Uh, uh, people from outside Turkey who are helping to pastor churches in Turkey have had that happened and not been allowed back into Turkey. We really need to pray for our Turkish brothers and sisters and we'll be doing that later on. But it's just amazing to think that Peter was writing this to believers uh, about how they were handling what it is to live in exile and 2,000 years later we still need to pray for the same region because the people of God are still living as exiles in Turkey. To God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is an amazing greeting that Peter gives to the believers in these regions. For the Jewish people, and of course Peter's writing as a Jewish man, to be exiled was disaster. You know the story that the people of God, because of their disobedience and rebellion, eventually were exiled from the land and carried into Babylon. And to be away from the land, away from the promised land, away from the temple, was disastrous. For us Christians, the whole thing has turned around. At the cross, everything turned around. At the cross, where the temple curtain was ripped in two and suddenly the holy place was revealed, everything kind of exploded out and now the normal state of being for Christians is to be exiled. Actually, we're meant to be scattered throughout the nations. This is normal Christian life. And so Peter writes to the elect exiles chosen to be obedient, experiencing grace and peace in abundance. Rather than gathering in the land of Israel and gathering to the temple and the worship being focused around the most holy place. Now we are the temple, the living temple, which has been scattered out into the world to carry God's presence to all the nations. We are called to be exiles, called as God's people to go to the whole world with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And this means that the theme of exile cuts two ways. One way it cuts is that we shouldn't feel ever too at home in this world. We're meant to have a sense of feeling alien. And I think the problem actually for much of our history here in the West has been that the, the world has felt much too much like home. In the era of so-called Christendom, where at least people held to so-called Christian values, it felt pretty easy to be a Christian. And that meant that often we didn't carry sufficient sense of our exile. Actually, we just conformed to the world because the world seemed to be conformed to us, even though often it wasn't. That was hypocrisy and, and just a veneer. And, and that's been a danger for us, that we can feel too much at home when actually we should feel that we are exiles. But the second dynamic is when we feel like we are exiles because of pressures that begin to come upon us from a world which doesn't seem to value what we believe uh, and, and can be hostile as a response. And in that kind of world, we can be tempted to compromise, that it's easy just to start to adopt the world's values because that's an easier way to live. So under the old, the old pressure was we just conform to the world because... It just felt too much like home, and the pressure for us now is that we start to compromise with the world because it can feel too difficult to live as an exile. What we need to understand is what Peter says to the believers, that grace and peace are ours. That's what we've been called to. And as exiles, we are called to an experience. We're called to experience abundantly the grace and peace of God and to live in a way which neither conforms to the world nor compromises with the world. And I want to illustrate this through the story of Samson. Now, this is a bit of a change of uh, plan. I've been planning for a long time to speak from Daniel, which is kind of an obvious go-to place from which to talk on the theme of exile. But on Wednesday, uh, for those of you, some of you are doing community Bible reading, reading the story of Judges at the moment, and got to the story of Samson and Delilah in Judges 16. And I thought, I think I should preach this at the weekend which was a shame because it meant I had to prepare a new message rather than just rehashing an old one, so it's been some old work, but sometimes the Lord leads in that way. So I'm going to uh, preach from Judges chapter 16, the story of Samson. It should come up on the screen so you can follow along with that, as well as open your Bibles if you've got them with you. The opening scene, verses 1 to 3 of Judges 16. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, Gaza was in Philistine territory, and so there's a question, what is Samson doing in Philistine territory? What is Samson doing in Gaza? And the story doesn't tell us, but from the, what we know about Samson, you get this sense he's probably just prowling around looking for trouble. That's the kind of guy that Samson was. And the theme, in many ways, of Samson's story, which is a glorious story, but also a tragic story, is that Samson was always living on the edge of compromise, always on the edge of compromise. 
And it's very easy for us to live this way too because we are surrounded by enemy territory. The world in which we live, it's very obvious that the values and the assumptions, the beliefs, the practices of the world are enemy territory. They're opposed to the ways and the purposes of God. And it's all too easy for us to dip our toes into the water of the world. It's too easy for us to try and sit on the fence in terms of, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Philistine. It's too easy for us to try and balance that knife edge, and the knife edge is a difficult place on which to balance. It's too easy, actually, for us to think, hey, the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence. And Samson seemed to live that way the whole time. He was always balanced on the edge of compromise. And he goes to Gaza and he sees a prostitute. And even the way this is phrased, he went to Gaza and he saw a prostitute. That seems to confirm that he's looking for trouble. That's what he's looking for. He's got his eyes open. He's looking for opportunities. He's kind of open to potential compromise. And of course, he finds trouble. Goes into the prostitute. The people of Gaza hear that he's there, their great enemy. They gather around the house, preparing an ambush. They want to get him. Their plan is they're going to wait until the morning. They think he's going to exhaust himself with a prostitute through the night. They'll get him when he's at his weakest. But Samson takes him by surprise. He doesn't wait till morning. He gets up in the middle of the night, rips the gates out in the bar. These are not like your garden gate. These would have been huge, massive, heavy things. He rips up and carries them to Hebron. Now, Hebron was... 39 miles from Gaza. So this was like an ultra marathon carrying a huge weight. This is Samson the strong man writ large. And Hebron is really significant. In Samson's day, Hebron was the leading city, the chief city of Judah. And it's a place that just, just reeks in symbolism biblically. It was a city that Caleb took when the people of Israel entered the promised land. Caleb, that great hero of the faith, only he and Joshua had been faithful throughout the whole period of the wilderness. Caleb took Hebron. And then 200 years after Samson, David is anointed king in Hebron. So this is a really significant place. And what it's showing is that not only is Samson getting victory over the Philistines, it's a sign that God will get the victory no matter what. Those Philistine gates are ripped up, they're carried to Hebron. It's a sign that God is going to win no matter what. So this opening scene sets the whole story up. God is going to win, and he's going to win through Samson, but Samson is compromised because he keeps forgetting his status as God's man with God's calling upon his life. Let's read the main event in the story. Verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was... Now, this is where we kill the Welsh brothers and sisters. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength. And how we can overpower him so that he may, we may tie him up and subdue him. Each of us will give you a whole bunch of loot if you do this. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. 
Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied, them, tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that had never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes of his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he, you're laughing too much there, Howard. Your wife's not here. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. The Nazarites, you'll read that in the, in the, in the law of Moses. The Nazarite was a special vow you could take to be set apart for God for a time. Samson was a Nazarite for life. If my head was shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding corn in the prison. If you read the whole story of Samson, which takes up several chapters of Judges, there are a lot of women in his story. Samson never learned sexual faithfulness, and that really was the root of his undoing. And in our context, the illustration, the connection is clear. In our context, sexual faithfulness is a huge issue. Philistine culture is not sexually faithful. To be sexually faithful is to live in the way of exile. This is actually one of the most challenging things in our context in terms of seeing people come to faith and then making disciples to teach people and help people to learn what sexual faithfulness looks like, whether you're single or whether you're married, that 
uh, this is actually what God calls us to. It's so alien to our culture, so challenging. You'll know, if you're, you're pastors, you'll know I spend so much of my time talking to people about the mess in their lives caused by sexual unfaithfulness, and so do you. That's how the world is. And Samson was God's man, God's people, but he never learned sexual faithfulness. That was his undoing. Now, in all the women that appear in the story of Samson, Delilah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we won't do that. My, 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 whatever. Is it? I'm English, so wrong. Cultural clangor. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, Delilah is the only woman who's actually named. Uh, he has an anonymous wife and he has an anonymous prostitute. Delilah is the only woman who's named. And the difference with Delilah is that Samson loves Delilah. He loves her. And that binds him to her. And that means that he's, he's also bound to compromise. Being tied to Delilah tied him to compromise. And it always comes down to a question of the affections. This is a question that we as exiles have to think about and answer. Where are my loves directed? What is it that I love? Who is it that I love? And as exiles who carry the presence of God, called to be the temple of God in the world, we need to be clear that our primary love, our chief affection is Jesus. It's got to be for God. And again, Samson never won this battle. His loves were divided. His loves were compromised. He loved Delilah. That meant he was bound to compromise. Loving Delilah was compromise. Where are our loves? And the question that everybody wanted to have answered about Samson is, why is he so strong? And that's an interesting question. I think probably most of us have a mental image of Samson that he looked like the rock, just kind of huge and overwhelming and ripping with muscles. But actually, the question that is asked, why is he so strong, indicates that he didn't look like that. If it looked like the rock, people would have said the reason he's so strong is because he looks like the rock, even though they didn't know who the rock was. But they would have. <laughs> the reason he's so strong is because he can't keep his shirt on, because every time he puts his shirt on, it just rips with the shredding of his mighty pecs and biceps. That doesn't seem to be how he was. He, the question indicates that he looked like a regular guy, but that he was awesomely strong. What is the secret of his great strength? His strength came from elsewhere. And I wonder if people ever ask this question of us. Because if we carry the presence of God, there should be a strength about us which causes people at times to say, why are they so strong? And that's not about, in our case, it's not about a physical strength. That's about a spiritual, moral, moral and ethical, uh, an inner strength. I think people should ask that about us and about our churches. What is the secret of your strength? Now, Delilah is happy to trade Samson for hard cash. And she's not subtle about this. She doesn't disguise her intentions with him. She makes her agenda very clear. Her agenda is to subdue him. Actually, that word can be interpreted as to torment him. She makes that very clear to him. And she whines about it. She You've made a fool of me. Why doesn't Samson say to her, actually, you've had these men hiding in the room ready to kill me? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you made a fool of me. You didn't let yourself be killed by the Philistines. It's kind of, she's totally brazen about it. And as you read the story, get the impression that Samson actually wants to tell Delilah his secrets. 
It's almost like he wants a secret to be out. It's almost like he doesn't want to be God's man anymore. It's almost like he wants to be a Philistine. Now, if we're Christians, we do have strength. Think of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. The reason that Paul prays that is that because is because that is a prayer that God can enact in us. We have been admitted to the glories, the riches of God, and he can strengthen us, will strengthen us through the Holy Spirit so that we would know power, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us. So we are called to expect strength in God. But we can grow weary because living in exile can be wearying. It's the burden of being different. We experience that all the time. If you live faithfully as a Christian, you are going to live differently from how other people do. The things that we do, the values that we have, the beliefs we hold, to live faithfully sexually, to go to church on a Sunday morning rather than to be out shopping or taking the kids to play football or whatever it might be, to live differently can be Wearying, it can start to feel like a burden. And Samson gives the impression that he's tired of this burden of being different. That he, he keeps saying, if you do this to me, I'll be like any other man. And, and I get this feeling that actually that's what he wants. I wish I was just like any other man. I'm tired of this burden of being the superhero, of being different, of being amongst the Philistines, but not actually one of them. I wonder if you ever feel like that. I know at times I do. Those days we just think, man, it'd be so easy. So much easier not to be different anymore. Just to be like everybody else. It's a dangerous place to be. Now, Samson was compromised. He liked the Philistines. He was meant to be the scourge of the Philistines, but he seems to like them. He parties with them. He sleeps with them. He's called as a Nazarite. He's set apart for God, but he doesn't really live like it. He keeps breaking his Nazarite vow. Early in the story, the part we didn't read, you know, the, the stories you all know, he kills a lion and then goes back later to check out how the rotting process is going, and he finds a beehive in it, and he takes some honey out. He shouldn't have done that. As a Nazarite, he was not meant to touch anything unclean, and the dead carcass of a lion was ceremonially unclean by any standards. He shouldn't have compromised by taking the honey. He was lured by the sweetness when he should have rejected what was impure. He goes down to get married to this Philistine girl, which he shouldn't have been doing either, and he has a drinking party. Nazarites weren't meant to drink. He wasn't allowed to even eat a grape, let alone drink alcohol, but he goes to drinking parties with the Philistines. He's completely compromised. It's almost like he feels... He's objecting to, objecting to his destiny, which is to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistine oppression feels like actually he wants to be with the Philistines, wants to be a Philistine. Now, do you ever feel resentful about the things that God has called you to do? So easy to get to that place. You can be in ministry, you can be having been a believer for a long time, and that involves sacrifice, it involves living as an exile. You know that you live different, you have the cost of being different. It's easy to get to that place where you can start to feel resentful. My life would be easier, my life would be simpler, I'd probably be better off, I'd, life would be more comfortable if I just lived like everybody else and stopped living like an exile. 
It's easy to get to that place. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be. Now, despite all of Samson's compromise, he still has his hair, these seven braids, seven plaits of hair. And Samson's hair is the sign of his separation to God. When the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother before he's conceived and gives instructions about this baby that's going to be born, it's a very messianic story, this angelic appearance and the promise of a baby. When that instruction is given, he's not The instruction is given that his hair is never to be cut. It is the ultimate sign of him being set apart for God. He's set for God, separated for God, and his hair is never to be separated from his head. It's a sign. And because he still has his hair, he's in that sense still holding on to his identity as God's man. But he then enters into these steps towards ruin with Delilah as she probes him for the secret of his great strength. First, he starts by saying, tie me up with bowstrings, and it's tie me up with ropes, and it's knit my hair into the loom. And you can see him getting closer and closer in the compromise, revealing the actual truth. And then finally he gives in and tells her to shave my head, and I'll be like any other man. And the thing about Samson and Delilah is that he loves Delilah, and she uses this, his love against him. He gets so sick to death, as it says, of her nagging, that he just gives in, but he, he sticks with her. It's this weird thing, he sticks with her. And what we see here is a, what we describe in our modern understanding of psychology and social dynamics. It's just a really abusive, controlling relationship. It's weird. He is the strongest man that's ever lived. He's God's man, and he's stuck in this controlling, abusive relationship with this woman who just manipulates and nags him and controls and dominates him. It's utterly humiliating completely bizarre. He is a man who is meant to live free, but he's become a captive. He's become tied. And think about how that word keeps appearing in the story. If you tie me with the bowstrings, if you tie me with the rope, if you tie my hair into the loom, actually, Samson is tied to Delilah. He's tied to compromise. Are there areas where we're tied to the world? So easy for us. We're called to live differently. We're called to live as exiles. We can so easily get tied. And it might be that we haven't gone all the way. It might be that we've still got our hair. But we've tied ourselves up in bowstrings, perhaps. Or we've allowed ourselves to be tied in ropes. Or we've allowed our hair to be knitted into the loom. And each step is closer to ruin. And the bowstrings don't seem to be a problem. I can snap those. No problem, but actually they are a problem because they're a further step towards compromise. They're a further step towards denying who you are. There are things that are normal for Philistines but should be alien for exiles. Christ has set us free. That means that we shouldn't be tied to the norms of the world. But Samson gets to the point where he simply gives up. Shave my head and make me normal. I've had enough of this exile. I've had enough of your, ne- your nagging, Delilah. I just want to be like everyone else. Just want to be like any other man. And I think as Samson gives in, as he says that, it's almost like he th- imagines that he's coming home. But actually, it's quite the reverse. We get to verse 20 of the story once his head has been shaved. And this is perhaps 
perhaps the most tragic verse in all of the scripture. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, that can happen to us if we fall into sin, if we forget we are elect exiles, if we go native, then we can lose all power without even realizing it. And of course, this is a story of so much of the church in the West. Why are the church buildings empty? Why is it that the Methodists, a revival movement, are contracting faster than you can keep track of? That they're selling off their buildings and dying and dying and dying. Why is the same thing happening to the United Reformed Church? Why is that increasingly happening to the Baptists? Why across the denominations do we see an emptying of the churches, a dwindling of the congregations? Why do we see that across the West? It's because there's so often been this compromise with the world don't realize that the Lord has left them. Stop living as exiles and power has been shorn. And so generally people now don't look at the church in the West and say, what is the secret of your strength? People look at the church in the West, even if they can see it at all, and say, why are you so weak, so irrelevant? Power has been shorn from the church in the West because we have compromised so much with the world. Actually, we forgot we were exiles. We thought this was home. Our heads have been shaved. And so the story goes full circle. Verse 1, Samson goes to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. Verse 21, he goes to Gaza with his eyes gouged out. He's been blinded by the world that he dallied with. His compromise has led to collapse. He's lost his identity as God's man. But he still can't escape his destiny. Let's read the finale of the story. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God saying, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. When they stood him amongst the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I could feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. 
in the dungeon, Samson's hair begins to grow. And the question everybody wants to ask is, why didn't the Philistines keep shaving his head? I think the reason is that the Philistines considered Samson's vow as a Nazarite broken, and therefore his power was gone, because that's how things worked with their gods. Dagon was not a merciful god. If you messed up, that was it. No second chances. And think about how equally merciless our culture can be. If you offend against the gods of our day, it can feel like there's no way back. Say the wrong thing. Do the wrong thing. Put that unfortunate tweet up. Facebook posts. Written off. Never allowed to return. But Yahweh is a God of grace. It's a different kind of God. And when Samson was conceived, God spoke to Samson's mother and he said this, the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Until the day of his death. It's not going to stop. He's always going to be set apart for me. Now, Samson had compromised, but God was faithful. Samson had broken his vow, but God didn't break his. All seems to be lost, and yet God will get the glory. So Samson's reduced to utter humiliation. Gaza is the place where he had ripped the gates from the ground, carried them 39 miles, and dumped them outside of Hebron. And now here he is slaving in a dungeon and then performing like a dancing bear in this idol temple. They call him to perform. You can imagine that was not a dignified performance. He'd have been stumbling around blinded. You can imagine the goading and the spitting and the humiliation he went through. And there's a servant who leads him. It's actually uh, translated as a, a young man, a boy, Samson, the ultimate he-man now led by a boy in this pagan temple to perform and be humiliated before his enemies. And it's this point of humiliation, it's here that we see Samson's real tragedy. His real tragedy is his lack of reliance upon God. His strength is God's gift. But Samson assumes it's his by right. He lived by his own strength. He forgot his dependence upon God. And it's so easy to do this in our place of exile. Here in the UK, we've got the NHS, we've got schools, we've got the internet, we've got money. Why do we need God? There's an election coming up. We can start to think that salvation lies in whoever promises to spend the most on the NHS or on broadband or whatever it might be. We can forget that our power actually comes, our salvation comes from elsewhere. And it's only when Samson is completely brought to his knees. It's only when he's completely ruined that he remembers who he is. Don't let this be our story. Let's not forget who we are. Now throughout this story, because Samson relies on himself rather than relying on God, we see, we see in Samson a process of reverse sanctification. What we're called to as the people of God is to grow in sanctification with every day that God gives us in his grace breath in our bodies. We're meant to become increasingly Christ-like, but Samson goes through reverse sanctification. He becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. At the beginning of the story, he wants a wife, and then he, later on he wants a prostitute. At the beginning of the story, we read about the Spirit coming upon him. Here in chapter 16, there's no mention of the Spirit coming upon him. 
Earlier in the story, he uses a woman in order to get at the Philistines. Here, the Philistines use a woman to get at him. There's reverse sanctification. Now, our character faults do amplify over time. We don't naturally by ourselves become better people. If you're mean, if you're selfish, if you're self-centered when you're 18, by the time you're 80, you are going to be hideous. That's just the natural process of how it goes. We become, you become increasingly like yourself, a more concentrated version of yourself with every day that passes. It's true for us all. And our character faults become amplified unless we allow the Holy Spirit to do his sanctifying work in us. This is how Paul prays to the Philippians. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What Paul is describing there, what Paul's praying for, is this process of sanctification. It's a process of discipleship that rather than our character faults being concentrated and amplified, actually our godliness would increase with every day that God gives us breath and our bodies. And so what Paul prays there for the Philippians needs to be the prayer of faithful exiles. It needs to be the prayer of disciples. Lord, let me love more. Let me understand more. Let me discern better. Let me be increasingly pure and blameless. Let me produce the fruit of righteousness. Let my life cause glory and praise to come to you. That needs to be our prayer. That needs to be our lived experience as exiles. That's not how Samson lived. And then finally, Verse 28, Samson at last cries out to God. And in the whole story of Samson, this is the, only the second time where we read that he cries out to God. And it's only in moments of extreme crisis that he does so. The other time it happens is back in chapter 15. Samson has this extraordinary moment where he takes up, it's a kind of a comic book story, Marvel story. He takes up a donkey's jawbone and he kills a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone and he makes a man with their bodies and he sings this great song, with a donkey's jawbone I've made donkeys out of them. It's an amazing comic book moment. And then he's about to die of thirst. He's exhausted and he says, he cries out to God and says, are you going to allow me to get this great victory and then die of thirst? And God opens up a spring and he drinks and is restored. That time and this time are the only times that Samson calls upon the Lord. Only when he's in crisis do we save our prayers for crisis. Actually, exiles are called to pray continually. The great model, the great example, the story I plan to speak from is the story of Daniel. He is the model of how to live in exile. And what does Daniel do? He goes into his room every day, bows down, and prays. The story of Daniel is so different from the story of Samson. Daniel stays faithful. Daniel is sanctified. Daniel reflects more and more what it is to be God's man in a hostile world. He knows what it is to call on God night and day in crisis and when things are going well. He prays. Samson only calls on the Lord when he's in crisis. Let's be like Daniel, not like Samson. And so he calls out to the Lord and says, just once more. It's really the, it's the appeal of a beggar. 
God, just once more, let me know strength. This isn't Samson's finest hour, morally or spiritually, but it is his greatest victory. And so we see again God's ability to bring triumph out of disaster. That's what God does. Samson's call is to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines, and in his death, he has his great victory. 3,000 of them die. God brings triumph out of disaster. But don't we wish that the story went a different way? So Samson is an encouragement to us and also a warning to us. He's an encouragement to us because the story of Samson shows us that God can use us no matter our faults and our failings. You mess up, you get things wrong, and God can still use you. God can still get the glory through you. God can still cause victory to come, even through failed people like you and me. God is going to get the victory no matter our flaws. That's encouraging. In Gaza, which is like hell, God is going to get the victory. Samson carried the gates of Gaza to Hebron, which is like Calvary. Because of Calvary, because Jesus won the ultimate victory there, God will get the victory. He will. Even through people like us. But there's also so much warning in this story. Samson could have been so much more than he was. His, his calling from God was crystal clear, but he never lived with clarity. In our exile, we need to be clear. We shouldn't feel so at home in the world, we forget we're exiles and just conform to the world. And neither should we feel so kind of lost in the world, we see it as a burden to be exiles in the world and then start to get tempted to compromise with the world. No, being exiles is what we're called to. Finish again with what Peter said to the exiles. Who are we? Elect exiles, chosen to be obedient, experiencing grace and peace in abundance. My prayer for us over these two days is that we'd be strengthened in these things. We'd be reminded of who we are as God's chosen people, chosen as his exiles, chosen to go out into the world, carrying the reality of God's presence, chosen to be obedient, to be sanctified, and chosen to experience the grace and the peace of God in abundance.